everybody and welcome to the TJ Podcast for October. I'm John Kennard, editor of TJ. Training Journal is the only magazine and website dedicated to L&D professionals in the UK. And this month, we are talking about motivation and engagement. Frostway's Kate Graham and I talk about a little bit of news to do with screen time and various events that are coming up. Ken Thompson drops in to talk about business simulations with Joe. Then me and Joe talk about the magazine and TJ Talks. First up, here's me and Kate. As is customary, we start with the news. Welcome once again to Frostway Groups. Kate Graham, how are you? Good morning. I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm uh, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in the uh, the world of Frostway. You've got some interesting uh, nine grids and the like coming out soon. It's a really busy time of year for us. So we've launched our first and interim version of a nine grid for talent acquisition. So looking at the recruitment space, which is really interesting. Uh, it's very fragmented, uh, lots of smaller providers, no real strategic leader in that market. So that's an interesting one that we're, we're, we're continuing to work on. And the new nine grids for 2019 for talent management and cloud HCM uh, were released at the end of last week. So lots to talk about there. Talent management particularly, we've included... Uh, what we, we're terming specialist solutions for the first time. So solutions that are looking at particular areas of the talent lifecycle, like employee engagement, for example. There's been a lot of um, applications and solutions that have sprung up around um, that area, things like well-being. And it's quite interesting it, it, the sort of effect that that's having on the on the buyers. Um, so they're out. And then this week we launched the results of our annual HR realities research as well. So um, looking at investment trends, um, tech trends, things around AI, is it really being adopted? Um, you know, chatbots and the like, are they a reality for anybody? So it's it's not so much looking at the future of work, but how some of this stuff is actually starting to make an impact on HR today or not, as the case may be. So I'd imagine that um, the Davids at Fosway are quite booked up for events. We're filling this swing of events season at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah. And there's there's a lot happening. So we're just off to uh, Paris to go to Unleash today. So David Wilson's speaking at that. And we have a lot of analyst meetings. Um, and November is crazy. They're both uh, speaking at various different things. David Perring was speaking at the Gherkin last week. David Wilson's keynoting at a number of uh, user conferences. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. And then more broadly, you've got things like Devlin is just about to kick off in um, the States, which is obviously a big event. I think the e-learning network have got their conference coming up. So, yeah, it's coming from all sides, it feels like at the moment. Yeah, definitely. We've uh, we've been to three or four. We've got three or four more coming up. Uh, I think OEB is the last one before Christmas. But then after that, we've got learning technologies, which you're still heavily involved with, I think? Yeah, it seems to increase <laughs> every year. Uh, so they're being very supportive around the Women in Learning initiative as well. So we'll, Fosway have our Digital Learning Realities uh, research, which will open next month. So we'll be presenting the results of that. Um, obviously, I'm still involved with the back channel. Um, and yeah, we'll be doing something around Women in Learning at that event as well. So watch this space. Absolutely. Moving on to our one news story for the week. It's quite an important one. Uh, I think it's something which 
you know, uh, is one of these things where you kind of find the research which maybe backs up your uh, initial preconceptions, but it's about screen time. I mean, the story, it comes from the Guardian's health and wellbeing section and uh, from Oliver Berkman, and it's about screen time for kids, but we could extrapolate this to include adults, you know, the amount of time you spend at screens at work and what that, uh, how that affects your sociability, if at all, this is the thing. So the article starts, is screen time damaging for your kids? No study can tell you that. Uh, so the stand, the, the, the first paragraph makes the point that there's a lot of research and there's a backlash to that research as well. It says, is too much screen time bad for your kids? Don't look to this column for an answer. The truth is nobody knows. The unceasing pendulum of lifestyle advice is currently swinging through a quote unquote debunking phase where numerous articles insist it's all been a big panic over nothing. Uh, and then it says, but this is actually because uh, the Royal College of Paediatrics said there wasn't enough evidence to give firm guidelines to parents. And then the article kind of goes on to uh, flesh that out, basically, and say that uh, you can't really tell. What do you think? I mean, it's. I think it's going to be a never-ending battle uh, of opinions, really, about the amount of screen time that's healthy for kids, for adults, and the impacts of that. What do you think, Kate? I, I, it's really interesting. I mean, I have I have two kids. Uh, my boy just turned six yesterday. Um, my daughter is is two, and both uh, love nothing more than to get mummy's phone and to watch whatever it is that they want to watch. But uh, but I, I I mean I am very mindful of it my, myself, and I think it's like anything. And I, I I am somebody who's horribly addicted to their to their phone. But I, I think a lot of it is about what content are you consuming? So when I look at my own screen time, it's always fairly horrific. But I'm doing a lot of more things now that like listening to audiobooks or listening to podcasts. So it's not all, you know, scrolling through Instagram. And it's the same with my kids. My boy has graduated into Minecraft territory and now has learned basically how to play the game because I don't know how to do it so we started off learning together but he's well past me now because he watches tutorials on youtube of how to play it he got a skateboard for his sixth birthday yesterday and he said to me this morning oh we'll have to see if we can find some youtube videos mummy on how to learn to ride a skateboard and yes he's obviously got to practice it himself in the real world but he knows that that is a resource that he can use to learn things um, and a lot of the games he plays are fairly educational as well, while he's learning to read and, and do maths, et cetera. You know, there are sort of useless ones like Mario Kart as well. But I can't help but think that some of it is content dependent. I completely agree. So um, I've got the latest version of uh, the Apple iOS, iOS 13, and it tells you quite a lot about your screen time, where you spend it, whether it's on social networks, etc. I just got a push notification this morning saying that last week I averaged six hours, 55 minutes a day. Um, that's quite a lot. But um, in my defense, I use it for absolutely everything, work-related everything. I mean, I remember one year at OEB, I took just my phone and did the whole conference in Berlin from my phone. I did all the blogging, all the social media, all the interviews, all the videos, uh, any podcasts, uh, everything. You know, So I do use it a lot and very constructively, but I think there is a con – I mean, I personally have a concern that there, you feel like maybe you're tethered to it and therefore – get a bit kind of anxious when you don't have it. And so it is important to kind of self-regulate again and, and make sure that you you don't, you, you wind down properly in the evenings or you read a book or you, you know, you, you make sure you switch your brain off 
appropriately so that you get decent sleep and then you can carry on using your phone all the time the next day. I don't so know. so we're, we're quite similar. So we have just basic rules around it. So my kids aren't allowed um, to have a phone or a tablet before school uh, because actually getting them off it, I realised quite early on, was too difficult and we'd have meltdowns and things whilst trying to get out on the school run. So that's now blanket rule. We also have the don't have them just before bed. Um, and I actually try and apply the same rules to myself. I don't have really time to look at it in the morning, which I used used to be a big part of my routine was to sort of catch up on what was going on in the world. Um, and I've had to change that now. Um, and I, I do read um, either my Kindle, just my Kindle um, or, you know, an actual book before I go to sleep because it's that whole kind of digital sunset thing. But it, I have the same version of iOS and just having the knowledge of how much you spend time on your phone I think is helpful so I think just being aware of it as you say and everybody probably underestimates how much time they really do spend on their phone um and it's the same with you know calorie counting something that I'm doing at the moment you can easily underestimate what you eat in a day and actually when you start to track it it's it can can be quite eye-opening so I think it's one of those things you get what you measure um, and in this case, it, it, it is helpful to have that reality check um, and just say, no, we need to go outside now. You know, it's time to go and learn how to skateboard in the park. Uh, now you've spent a couple of hours maybe looking at YouTube or, or whatever online. Yeah, I agree. Um, we live right down the end of the road is a massive park from us and um, we make much as much use of it as we can, although currently the weather's not fantastic and uh obviously the kids are at school but um yeah i i I think you need i think the jury's going to be out for a long time and the article does make a point that it's because there isn't any kind of sufficient research to say one way or the other i think there's a kind of a uh a, a class angst about it like you should be doing something else like for some reason time on screens isn't time well spent and like you said i think there's an incredible amount of learning and resource that you can get from these things evidently you know um my daughter my youngest daughter's speech has come on a ridiculous amount since she started watching uh various programs on on cbb's and all that sort of thing and it's really really helped her development so uh it's a difficult one but um one that will rage on and on the debate i think yeah, I, I do think, I mean, you know, some of the research that's come out about mental health and I find I find that social media in particular gets blamed a lot of the time for these things. But I think if you look at some of the content out there and get lost in it a little bit and don't come up for air in the real world, then I can see how it could affect people's mental health. So it, it does just come back to an awareness of what the real world is and that you need to spend time in the real world and that a lot of um what you're looking at is you know it, it the content is as you said trashy um and i think it's about a social construct you, you know you control what your kids are looking at um while they're little like ours and but you're also in control of what you're looking at and if you don't enjoy it or if it's not beneficial or productive it doesn't make you feel good don't you know just don't follow that stuff anymore don't look at that stuff anymore and I, I I think sometimes there's an unwillingness to switch off that that button and unfollow and and tune out of certain things that aren't good for us and I think we could all probably stand to have an awareness of that side of things as well as the overall volume of uh consumption 
Yes, indeed. Uh, if you can beat six hours, 55 minutes a day, which is my current amount of screen time, then please do get in touch. Uh, and if you're going to be at the various events coming up, we've got ACE in Manchester. Uh, we've got ELN Connect. Uh, we've got a couple of smaller ones. We've also got OEB uh, in December as well. We've got the TJ Awards on the 3rd of December. So if you're going to be at some events, uh, TJ will definitely be there. Fosway will probably be there as well. <laughs> and we'll see you soon. Bye. Yeah, see you soon. Right, let's talk about the magazine, Joe. Hello. Let's. Hello. How are you? Very well, and it's not often we're in the same place once again. We're we're less than a meter apart from each other. Can oh, you believe it? I can feel the sparks flying. Absolutely. Normally, we use uh, uh, ZenCaster, other virtual studio recording software is out there, but uh, it seems to do a decent job for us. But yeah, we have the rare occurrence of us both being available in the same room at the same time. That's a miracle. It is indeed. And we're going to talk about this month's magazine, the focus of which is motivation and engagement. Um, of course, we start with uh, an editor's note, a welcome. Uh, the thing I'm going to pick up from what Debbie said in this month's note, uh, she doesn't mention food, although the next two columns in the magazine do. More on that later. She says, pairing back all the anecdotes and theories, you could say that motivation and engagement comes down to simply making your people happy. Is it that simple? I'm not sure in its entirety it's that simple, but I think it's a great place to start because if your people are unhappy, they're not going to work very well and you need them to work well. That's true. That's true. And uh, obviously we talk about happiness in the magazine uh, with Henry Stewart's piece uh, that that rounds up this month. But uh, in between the cover and in between the front cover and the back cover, we also have Donald Taylor, who, who's... Uh, I was amused in a very good way, in a very... It made me feel warm inside the opening to Don's <laughs> piece this month about um, walking the streets of Brit of Cancale in Brit Consal. So it's French, so I guess. Walking so the we streets. We could just say Brittany, couldn't we? Well, I was, <laughs> was going to be more specific, but I'm not going to be fancy. Oh, so I think Don's just more educated than both of us. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, I, th I guess Consal, possibly in Brittany, uh, and going to an oyster festival. Now, I, this isn't related, but I'm not a fan of oysters. Do you like oysters? I've never tried one. And I would try one, but I'm not unhappy not to. Yeah, I th it feels like something that is an acquired taste, I don't know. I think I? so. Certainly and I haven't think acquired that taste yet. If anyone's going to acquire taste, it's going to be Don. <laughs> For sure, yes. Uh, it's a, it seems like a very uh, Don, big Don T thing to do. Um, <laughs> but he links his experience with oysters in this amazing restaurant that he goes to um, with the tyranny of choice. He references uh, Sheena Ianga and Mark Lepper talking about uh, the demotivation of choice. I picked up on uh, Douglas Copeland in Generation X talking about option paralysis. And essentially, sometimes a bit too much choice is a bad thing. And uh, the quote I've picked out here is, if a wide range of choice can be so detrimental, what does this say for L&D? Traditionally, our role has been to present people with an abundance of resources. This made sense when information was scarce but today our role must be to reduce the choice of learning resources to the best possible set of options for the individual. So we're talking again about curation and semantics. I don't necessarily know it's semantics, but yeah, it's interesting when I run my, uh, I've got a particular product that I run outside of TJ, and at the beginning of it, I offered an abundance of resources, but the stats tell me people weren't looking at it. 
So you kind of have to pair it back to, or what is it that actually people are using it? Is it that type of PDF? Is it this type of resource? Is it that type of video? And how long should that be? And let that inform what you run and what you develop and deliver and make that really good quality rather than the, the more is, is more. Uh, so I really like what Don was saying there. Yeah, I read a book. Uh, I read a book. Um, <gasps> no, what, like with paper and everything? Paper. Oh, my um, goodness. Some glue holding them together. And uh, it was called Inside Steve's Brain. And it's a little bit of a misnomer because it was supposed to be this kind of psychological breakdown of how Steve Jobs operated his business. And it wasn't really. It was more kind of a hegemonical uh, look at Apple's products. But they did make a good point. Hegemonical? Place... I don't, I'm going to hold my hands up. I don't know what that word means. Uh, un- uncritical, self-serving kind of... Oh, okay. Sort of Celebrating Apple, in yeah. other words. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and they were talking about the way that the Apple Store's put together. And it's kind of played into what you just said, which is that it's about making fewer products, but really, really, really well. Mm. You know, and really focusing on those things. Absolutely. I remember going to the States for the first time in my early 20s and I went shopping uh, one day. There was a rack of earrings. I was like, oh, okay, shiny object, earrings, excellent. Looking through. Then there was another rack of earrings. And I was like, oh, well, I looked through those and, and that, that's a nice pair of earrings. And it just comes to the point I suddenly looked up and there were like 19 racks of earrings, at which point I thought I can't possibly look at all of these and make a choice and walked away, which is exactly what Don's talking about. Yeah. Um, let's move on to what you're talking about, Joe. Uh, again, we have a food reference. We do. My mum's flapjack, which is really tasty. Uh, so tell us about how flapjacks relate to L&D. <laughs> how can a flapjack not relate to L&D? Um, it was a story from when I was younger. Of basically, my mum found me wandering up the stairs one day, having not cut up the flapjack that she'd cooked. And me basically saying, well, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, and I was quite young in my before I was a teenager and my mum loves telling this story and she always puts at the end of the story if my daughter doesn't want to do something she doesn't which is fairly true and it it was just kind of questioning how much of that is a character trait how much of that is positive when you know yourself and your gut instinct and how much of that is a negative thing to overcome because you don't want to let people down if you've agreed to something and it was just kind of discussing that in the column and you also referenced that quote um, I didn't realise it was a Henry Ford, attributed to Henry, Henry it's Ford. Which attributed is... to Henry Ford, Richard Branson, probably Abraham Lincoln, if you look hard enough hmm. on the internet, lots of people have been attributed to. But this is, this is the quote, which, you know, even though it's popular, it doesn't make it less true, uh, which is, know. what if you train people and they leave, uh, versus what if you don't train them and they stay? So what better advert for learning and development? Yeah. Uh, moving on to Debbie's piece, she talks about our newly confirmed uh, host for this year's TJ Awards 2019, Jackie Oatley, who uh, spearheaded the incredible popularity of uh, uh, women's football this year with the World Cup. And so we thought it was a brilliant uh, way to round off a great year for her and a great Absolutely. year for TJ as well. And isn't it the FIFA Women's World Cup year? It, it was, yes, yeah. this summer. And um, actually, my nieces are both in. Um, young girls football clubs uh, one's at Southampton one's at Chelsea training ground and they're both like six and eight years old so seeing that through a really young generation is absolutely awesome even though I'm not a football fan in the slightest that's cool yeah my my daughter just gave up football actually because uh, the boys in her school wouldn't pass the girls so there's work to be done there definitely definitely Uh, our spotlight this month is on Jane Hart Uh, if you don't know who Jane Hart is um, in the Stanfest she's a workplace learning legend 
a uh, big fan of Twitter. She puts a rather legendary top 100 learning tools. Mm-hmm. Is it top 100? Top 100, yeah. Yeah, every year um, Twitter often comes out on top. And it, I guess it's an advert for choosing your personal learning networks because Twitter can be really, really positive. Yeah. And that's a good thing about the learning community is generally people are all very Absolutely. enthusiastic and positive towards each other. And I love what, uh, what Jane says about Twitter. She says, learning and development is a continuous process and so is Twitter, which I joined in 2008 and has provided for me for the last decade with a constant stream of news, ideas, resources and conversation. I often say in my keynotes that it is Twitter that has allowed me to stand there and talk to them about what's happening in the world of workplace learning. That's good to hear. And she has uh, various tips for playing to win, but I'm just going to highlight the last one. Knowledge isn't power, sharing knowledge is power. Oh, loving that, loving that. So what's next uh, in the magazine? We have a lovely piece about conversations from Sarah Hope. Really enjoyed this. It's full of lots of bits of research um, about where conversations are, different generations in the workforce, but also just the idea, and she kind of ends with the the call to action really of strengthening our human connections through the power of conversation and that it builds trust, boosts engagement and is the key to change. Do you agree with that, John? Always. And I think, uh, and to, to pull out the quote from Sarah's piece, uh, organisations would be wise to consider how to blend the technology that's expected with the human conversation element we all as human beings crave. This is so important, I think. Mm. Rather than an either-or approach, it needs to be a both and approach yeah. to connecting and we've we've talked a lot on the podcast and various articles about us being a remote team and how we work digitally but also how much we enjoy and how important it is coming together which is why we're together today just to take advantage of being together and having those conversations indeed indeed moving on we have angela armstrong phd she's talking about values and resilience uh techniques to identify your core values and uh the quote that I really liked here, and throwing back to something you said, Joe, um, rather than feeling like you're not being committed to the business by saying no to something new, consider this as honouring the commitments you already have and recognising exactly where your skills lie. Maybe that's what you were doing and you didn't oh, realise. Oh, that's what it was. That's my flapjack element, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> because you've defined your values and boundaries, you are able to fulfil your commitments to the best of your ability. Yeah, and I really like this article. I think I've, I've read various things over the years about how to establish your values and it's something I think about a lot uh, as a as an independent person as a professional as a business owner and then how my business runs on those values and how we work together for example and it actually is a really nice article on just thinking about how to come up with those values and I found it really really useful. Moving on from Angela's piece we have our regular columnist Liggy Webb talking about all things soft behavioural resilient skills related uh, this month we're talking about managing emotions. One, and breathe. <sighs> Thank you, Jane. Two, stay calm. Always. Three, recognise your inner control freak. I don't have one. Oh, yeah? Mm. <laughs> Four, let go of anger. I've got something to say about this. Okay. Is uh, So last week, uh, in my personal life, I had something where I found I had some anger. Um, and it was all about letting go of that anger. But I don't know how to do that on this particular issue. And I thought it was really interesting, completely agree with what Liggy's saying here. And what this article made me think is, I don't know how to do that. 
in this context so therefore that's the bit I need help and support with now whether that's reading a blog or a podcast or seeing someone or chatting with friends or a bottle of wine I don't know but that's what made the article made me think it's not how to do it it's highlighting I don't know how and that was really powerful for me hmm. yeah I I uh, do you use any meditation apps or mindfulness apps or no I have thing? done but no I'm not really <laughs> I, I use one called Buddhify. Other meditation apps are available, uh, which which is quite useful for just calming down, taking a yeah. breath. But you don't. I mean, you don't need. It doesn't have to be app based. You can just exactly garden. Yeah. all those things. So yeah, it's definitely. But definitely, I think the things that Liggy has here, and, and the fifth one she said is get some rest, which is so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and I just thought, if any of those things, if your initial reaction like mine was, well, that's all very well and good if you can. That to me meant, huh, maybe that's where I need to investigate more. And that was, for me, that was the power in that piece. Yeah, for, to, to talk about the fifth one a little bit more, it seems like sleep is also something which is being better understood and mm. given more of a premium in one's life now. Um, I know that Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post is kind of, I think, I think she sold Huffington Post. Anyway, her focus now is about sleep and about... Oh, really? uh, She's written a book called Thrive, which is all about how to uh, adjust your life to accommodate enough sleep and the power of that sort of thing. Yeah. You should tell that to my other half who decided to stay up on Sunday all night to watch the Formula One that was playing at 2am. Yeah, it was in Japan and he decided to stay up all night, which I thought he was an idiot, but maybe he hasn't read that book. I've done, <laughs> I've done that for the Oscars before. Ah, fair enough. Next we have Mongezi Makalima, who's talking about leadership, accountability... Uh, here's the pull quote from this piece that I really hung on to even as we shift attitudes towards the humanity of the business we still project unrealistic expectations onto elected leaders unconsciously or otherwise we give them all the praise and all the blame we demand perfect leaders who demonstrate intelligence, emotional savviness, courage and agility while expecting them to show the wisdom of Solomon unwavering rectitude and deliver outstanding financial results seems unrealistic but we either we put them or they are elected into or promoted into a leadership role and we pay them sometimes hundreds of thousands or millions to do that if we think about thomas cook recently the 178 year old uh, british business that went under should we not expect that from somebody in an industry which is if not thriving it's not exactly a suffering industry should they not have survived and should the leadership not be able to do that and we should have those expectations of those leaders um it's an interesting one i mean we're all human you know just because someone's getting paid a lot doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't got faults there's there's being human and there's you're being paid a lot in a leadership role to do a particular role and and if it's not that one person, it's a board of directors, it's a team of people. I, I wouldn't necessarily say there's one person that we can blame for that. But if you were in that role or roles or team, you're there to lead that. You know, the captain of the ship should pilot the ship in a way that doesn't hit the rocks. Yeah, um, I think... I mean, there's no... I guess there needs to be more understanding about why Thomas Cook failed. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's going just to be, an example, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to be, it's going to be a, a failure of, of leadership at some level. Yeah. But I think generally more people are being asked to... This is something that we're going to come back to, and I think we've covered <laughs> quite a lot, but 
more people are being asked to take on managerial roles. Yeah. And with that, and, and a managerial role is a is a a described position with with uh, duties in mm. a, you know on the page of a job description, whatever. Yeah. Leadership is something less tangible, which more people can exhibit that don't necessarily have that that title. Mm. But not everyone who becomes a manager or a leader. Anyone can become a manager, but not all people are good leaders necessarily. Mm. And there's obviously a failure with leadership in Thomas Cook and various other businesses that they weren't acting in the interests of the business necessarily, maybe, allegedly. Who knows what I need to say there? We'll speak to our lawyers afterwards. (laughs) But um, I I think sometimes people are held in unrealistically high regard. And yeah, of course, if you're the CEO, then you've, you've got to that position, hopefully, by virtue of merit and that you can do the best for your company but unfortunately sometimes power corrupts and sometimes people Mm. act in their own self-interest and yeah so yeah and I think actually if we bring this back down to a a very personal level I'm on a a number of different Facebook groups for different interests that I have and some of that is around the whole war on plastic environmental kind of thing and whilst I'm no environmental warrior I think it's everybody's job to do a little part of that and it's interesting the posts where somebody says, look, I've done X as a good thing or an example of you could do X as well. Um, and one of them recently was some of those, those nets that you get fruit in and they'd put something in, they'd made a scouring pad out of it. It's like, brilliant, you're reusing something, awesome. But about 100 responses were saying you shouldn't buy the fruit in the netting in the first place. And it was like, oh my goodness me. You know, the person there is sharing something positive out of a negative context, and we're just giving negativity. And whilst that's not leadership accountability in the same way uh, that Mongazi here is talking about it here, it's about all of us being leaders and actually all of us being um, positive about other human beings. You've hit on something there, which I think is a much bigger question, which is about the way that. I, I think communication across social networks specifically is polarised. And so people are very quick to get very angry. And yeah, like you said, that's a brilliant example of using of reusing something. If you wanted to say it, you could use the word upcycling, but I hate it. Um, but you know, that is a good use of something else. But someone somewhere is going to have an opinion that's yeah. negative. And yeah. yeah, that's something we've got to deal with, I guess. Um, moving on to the next piece, Gemma Lee Roberts from the Career Compass Club uh, talks about burnout in the workplace. I also published this on trainingjournal.com. Go and check it out. Uh, I, th- I, don't, I think we can't, I can't really synopsize the piece better than the pull quote we used, which is that real resilience is about how to recharge and take care of yourself for optimum pr- productivity, not about how you endure hardship and plod along. And I think that's really important because for so long... Uh, it's just been about, I've got to work the long hours. I've got to, you know, yeah. put it in and work myself. Because if I don't, someone else is going to do it harder. And... Yeah. But that's the message often that, going back to kind of poor managers maybe, um, or the uh, culture of an organisation. If you're told there's 10 or 100 or 1,000 other people willing to do your job unless you work extra hours, do something maybe you're uncomfortable with, whatever it might be, largely people are going to do that and that's where that that burnout then takes place i was talking to someone recently and saying before going on holiday uh my business partner had worked till something like eight o'clock at night and i felt quite bad about that and he scoffed at me and went i do that every night and he was like well our decision is to have work-life balance and your decision 
in your role is to do something different and I thought that was kind of interesting. So what was the upshot? Did you, uh, did they carry on doing it? Did you say this is what you... I think we didn't get into it there and then, it was a social context, but it did just make me reflect on the strength of my values, going back to that piece we had earlier in the magazine, and our values were about work-life balance, about the resilience of not burning out in our own business, and therefore actually working till eight o'clock at night, we didn't think, whilst on occasion you do it because it's necessary, we didn't necessarily think that actually we should be working till eight o'clock every night. We don't think that's a healthy way for ourselves and to run our business. Yeah, I think as long as you're on the uh, the same page and you have a work-life balance, which you yeah. both agree with, it's a good thing. The polar opposite of which is a company I worked for a while ago where literally at five o'clock, everyone shut down. Everyone shut down, regardless of what they're doing. And I was like, that seems extreme. Well, it goes back to that piece about motivation and, and Debbie says in, in the opening leader about, uh, you know, people who are engaged will do more. Um, and I had a, an organisation I worked with at one time where, very long story short, I was basically uh, told off, is the short version, for leaving the office on time because uh, I was getting ready to go at maybe five to five to get my train. And somebody senior had noticed that I was going leaving the building because, you know, I'm not exactly easy to miss. Uh, and I used to walk down the hallway opposite his office. And uh, well, I got told off for it. But what I found really, really annoying is that the person who was subordinate to the person who had complained about this caught the train before me. Um, so it's just like, well, where's the fairness in that? Mm. Um, and guess what? I wasn't as engaged or motivated after that. I was always in half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour early, and I never was after that. Mm. Uh, maybe that goes back to my flapjack story. <laughs> Moving on. Elsewhere in the magazine, we cover intention, we cover coaching, uh, we cover how to help graduates adapt to work life. Mm. Um, a quote pulled out from that piece. Businesses are increasingly understanding and accepting of the new reality that today's new starters don't just want to work for a salary, they need a clear purpose. I think we know what's going to come here. <laughs> they want to know what the company's strategic plan is, how they can contribute to the plan through the work they're doing, all the ideas they can offer, and what that will mean for them in terms of career opportunities. That was Peter Ayer from Vivox, CEO of uh, Engagement at Vivox, um, and that piece. We're, we're sailing very close to the millennial wind, I think. I was wondering if you were going to use the M word. Yes. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and... Uh, it's still quite a prevalent term and important for a lot of people, I think. But uh, I'm still questioning the wisdom of the, uh, the, the generational differences that we, that, that we see perpetuating mm. in publishing. And I think, I did say this this year and I have let it slip a couple of times, but from 2020, we're going to stop using the word millennial. Mm, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, in our very last uh, article in the magazine, we have the lovely Henry Stewart. And uh, as we said earlier on, he talks about companies that prioritise happiness. And I just wanted to pull out one thing that's really important because it was about engaged staff in a hospital. And what they found was that for every 95 people that died in a hospital with high levels of engagement, 103 died where those levels were low. And that's equivalent to 5,000 lives a year being saved as the result of engaged staff. And I think if that metric doesn't tell you about how important engaged staff are, I don't know what is, quite frankly. Yeah, that's, that's 
really important way to round off that piece, I think, because um, we're talking about happiness. It seems sometimes that it might be something difficult to quantify. And it might seem fluffy to mm. someone. When, when you've got a deadline or something to do, it's like, I don't care if you're happy, do it. But this is about the overall happiness in your work. Yeah, absolutely. So whether, as Henry says in his roundup, whether your organisation is in the public or private sector, ensuring it has a culture where staff are happy and engaged is not just a nice to have, it's a critical factor in ensuring it is successful. Yeah. And that was the magazine. What's TJ Talks all about and, uh, and, and where are we going? What's, what's happening with our webinars, our videos, our podcasts? Our... Mm. So people may have noticed we've put a little pause on the webinars at the moment. And what we want to do is bring you the same great content, speakers, topics and questions, but in a different way. Um, and TJ Talks is about events, it's about discussions, it's about learning together and... I don't know if I want to say that much more about it, John, other than that we've got more coming, haven't we? We have, we have. We've, uh, we've got our amazing uh, archive of webinar recordings. We've mm. got some uh, exclusive video interviews, maybe, coming up. And, maybe, yeah. maybe. Uh, in other, other words, yes. We've and some that. other events <laughs> as well. So keep an eye on the hashtag and there's going to be more great discussion content coming your way very soon. Yeah. Hi TJ, it's Joe Cook here and I'm having a great conversation with Ken. Now Ken, tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, I'm Ken Thompson from my accent. You probably realise I'm from Belfast. We're a, a business simulation company that operate globally and are really unique is we try to have people learn by discovery. I'm a great fan of Socrates. He says, I can teach nobody anything. I can only make them think. And we believe the stickiest kind of learning is what you discover by yourselves and our facilitations enable you to do that in the areas of all the key management skills. Loving that. So when you say business simulation, what does that actually look like? Uh, well, a couple, of, a couple of characteristics. Firstly, it's aimed at a manager level. So uh, first line, second line managers and emerging talent. And typically in a room or partly virtually, you might have three or four teams, each with a computer on their desk, and there might be five to seven people in, 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 on each team. And there's somebody like me at the front of the room with my computer projected on a big screen, and I'm guiding them through a business simulation, and I'll probably have another facilitator helping me. And uh, we'll make them, we'll brief them on the topic, which might be uh, business strategy or change management. Uh, we'll demonstrate the simulation. We'll then give them time to form a team. And they're usually sitting with colleagues who they may not have worked with. So one of the natural learnings comes out of this is how to form and operate an effective team. They form a team, uh, they read the brief materials, then they play the sim and it's typically three or four rounds. And at the end of each round, uh, they, we show, they see the results. They reflect on the results. We show them a group leaderboard. That's how everybody's doing. So that makes it nice and spicy. And we repeat that three or four times. And then at the end, we send them away to reflect on the whole exercise. They come back and do a mini presentation. And then we have what we call the big reveal of the Oscars. We show the final leaderboard. 
and, and we try to do it that every team, we pick out the good performance in every team. Uh, we, we, we try to avoid this team's a winner and everybody else is a loser. And typically takes, some of the Sims take an hour, more likely it's a four-hour sort of session. When, uh, and uh, it's multi-dimensional as well. We don't want them sitting looking at the screens all the time. So they're arguing with each other. They're role-playing with the facilitator. They're reading briefing material. And we're changing things. We're throwing in change. And they're also worrying about the clock. So so that's the kind of, that's what a typical one feels like. Okay, there's lots in there. And having done, maybe not quite as good as what you're describing, but in previous roles, I've done some things like that and ended up quite badly arguing with colleagues and having to apologise afterwards. Uh, there were some learning points in that I could take away. So this is sounding good. And and you mentioned things like the leaderboard. So, you know, there's a, that buzzword of gamification. So how much gamification do you put into your sims and also the flip side of this is obviously there's all sorts of chatter and research saying that game mechanics or gamification isn't the silver bullet that some people thought it would be for learning what are your thoughts around that yeah i i, I think i i would resonate with that you know certainly uh gamified learning we think is is a good way to learn uh, people basically, if you do it right, they forget it's a game and all of a sudden they're totally absorbed and you can see their behavior. You know, if, if people are bossy, they'll be bossy in the simulation. Uh, the other people that I told you so, but I'm not going to tell you until you've made a mistake kind of people that comes out. So it's a, I call it an observatory of human nature, uh, but you have to decide what you want to observe so you can you can learn about a topic. You can learn about the whole aspect of team and you can learn about your individual style. And the gamification is great, but it can get out of hand. You know, you have to, people are very, people are competitive animals. And if you hype up the competition too much, I don't think people learn very much. The other thing we like to do is start a game off and let people assume it's competitive. And then halfway through, we give them a light bulb moment actually you do realize you're all part of the same organization and change it halfway through. So gamification can be quite good at uh, busting silo thinking where you, you, you actually let it get competitive and then you dial it back. But there are concerns about game, gamification. Um, uh, one of the classic ones is it, it can damage your intrinsic motivation. You know, I'm not going to do the right thing unless somebody incentivizes me. So you can get a short-term blip from gamification, but a long-term, it's like you, it's the classic where you pay your staff a bonus on a year where they didn't deserve a bonus and everybody loves you for it. And the next year, there was a bad year as well. And you can't afford a bonus, uh, but you, they say, well, we got a bonus last year. So there, there are longer-term issues. I'm a big fan more of the kind of nudge theory, you know, small encouragements, gamification for example i've i've my wife and i are now addicted into the fitbit craze and we've 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 got this fitbit but we've got our health provider has an app the fitbit connects to and if i do 12 points a week which is is not a fantastic amount of steps i get a coffee voucher from starbucks and i get a free cinema ticket <laughs> yeah well there is that you know yeah uh, you have to pick your coffee carefully so i think there's uh 
yeah, gamification is great, but I would dial it back to more the behavioral economics and let's encourage people. Let's not let's not go mad. The other thing is, if you well, let, gamify- let me interrupt you there for a second on that kind of nudge theory. So that's all great. I can see that working in an hour or four hours about where you nudge them with regards to the thinking that maybe you want to foster. But if you're doing that in in let's say a half day, how does that work across? weeks or months that nudge theory do you get personally get involved in that or advise companies about it uh we do we do a bit um generally what we do is we 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 train facilitators to deliver our sims and we we license the sims so we we usually get involved in the pilot project and don't get involved much afterwards um so we're we're a bit one step removed from it but what what we see the clients doing who are getting the most out of simulations is they're following up afterwards with phone calls uh, to try and keep the learning alive. I think that's the one of the most difficult challenges, you know, apart from measuring return on investment on learning, how to keep learning alive when you get back to base. Mm. Um, but our simulations, the learning that comes out is quite, quite general, you know, uh, one of the things is we make the simulations hard, difficult, but not too difficult to succeed in. So we find one of the things is confidence building and, and people regularly report their, their, their confidence levels have gone up after they, they complete a simulation. The other thing is organizational learning. Um, I'm a great fan of Jay Cross's work on, on social and informal mm-hmm. learning and actually a simulation if played with colleagues and a good facilitator, you'll learn more from your colleagues and the facilitator than you might learn from the sim, just in terms of this is the way we do things here and other ways to do things and uh, uh, experience sharing. I like it. And what about you as a facilitator? What do you learn from each of the groups that are doing this? Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. I I probably f- am facilitating a sim every every week. Um, it's uh, and the thing is, the interesting thing about a simulation is, say there's there's ten key learning points. In in our model, people won't learn that all at the same time. Group one will learn learning point three, maybe in the third round. So it's quite challenging uh, because you can't just deliver material. You have to be able to uh, take situations and use that to illustrate material. So simulation is, is quite challenging. There's two types of simulations, Joe. There's one where people are playing the computer, and that's quite predictable. You know what's happening. But we have another kind of simulation where teams are playing against each other. Our most uh, popular ones, six coffee shops in a market, and they're competing over market share. And, and these kind of simulations are, are very challenging to facilitate because one team can do something crazy and it changes the game for everybody else. Mm. So uh, the other thing I find as I get older, I'm becoming less patient and more <laughs> of a, a, an autocratic facilitator. And I'm now penalizing people a lot more than I used to. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm just keeping an eye on that one. I don't want to be a... a, a, a a, a grumpy old sort of facilitator, you know, <laughs> uh, one foot in a grave style facilitation, but I'm, I'm definitely on the road to it. 
You don't sound grumpy to me. Um, now, one of the things that we were talking about before the recording was you were saying because you work worldwide, obviously some of your delivery has to be virtual. Uh, and most TJs will know that is my wheelhouse. So let's talk about, you know, training. A, it's training the trainers that you talk about, but also um, running the simulations face-to-face versus the webinar or virtual classroom approach. What What's your uh, take on that? Well, this is a favorite topic of mine. I've, I've sort of, over the, over the years, written four books on different aspects of, of high-performing teams. And virtual teams is, is the greatest challenge and the, and the greatest opportunity. Um, so at, at, uh, at the minute, in terms of when we run simulations, it's quite common. Uh, the easiest configuration is everybody in the same room. That's lovely. And you get all the social learning, you get eye contact, you get the body language. You know, it's great. Um, one step off from that is you've one or more teams in a different room. And, and that's quite good, too. Um, you, you don't lose too much of the social learning, um, particularly if you've got one person in that room who's, who's pe- like almost a, a second facilitator in the room. But it starts to get more complicated when you know uh, the individual participants all wish to be in different places, and I can see why companies do it. There's great cost and time savings, mm. but um, I think we we did a pilot project recently. Normally, when somebody says to us, uh, "You do facilitated simulations all at the same time," what about self-directed without a facilitator? We say, "Sorry, that's not what we do," but. People asked that so many times, we decided we had to have a better answer than that. So we converted our sim, one of our sims to what we call solo operation, where we pulled out the facilitator, put in some extra software and said, look, instead of doing this over four hours with a facilitator, you can run it one hour a week over eight weeks without a facilitator. Although we say you do need a course director and we, I, I wasn't positive about it. We did the first project and actually we got great feedback. Um, and what I discovered was. That's interesting in itself that you weren't positive, but you got great feedback and you were responding to what your clients were, were asking. Yes. Um, now, uh, most people on most people actually uh, on the pilot project preferred it to a face to face. Now, this was a company that is immensely busy. You know, they can't get together. So. I think that they're used to doing work in their own time. Also, it was technical people. And without generalizing, they didn't mind losing the social learning. <laughs> they, they weren't really looking for the social <laughs> learning to start with. And although we said spend an hour a week, some of them spent a lot more. So it's, you know, it depends on the audience. I think if you've got a technical audience and they're prepared to live with the technology and understand it and they can get their microphone and, and audio working and are, they actually like the slightly impersonal nature of it and the fact they can go into more depth but i would say certain simulations were, that are really played as teams you really are losing a lot if if you do them virtually so i think um it, it's it's really deciding on what kind of people are being trained, what's their background and what the learning objectives are. 
I think you make a great point. So I'm always banging the drum for you can do virtual classrooms uh, and that kind of collaboration, communication, training, and it can be often as good as face to face sometimes better, sometimes not. But you're right, it depends on what the outcomes are. It depends on what the learning points are, depends on the context. Are there times when you've run, let's say, a WebEx or something like that, where where you're finding actually by using things like chat rooms or the chat window and breakout rooms, that actually you're getting an element of that social interaction that perhaps you hadn't quite thought you would? Yes, uh, we've got that sometimes. Uh, one of the configurations is if your if your technology, such as I know Zoom and Webex does this, allows you to set up private rooms where you've got private virtual rooms as well. So one of the problems is if you're just using Webex or standard Zoom or Skype, you're always engaging with the whole group. But if you're doing Teams you really need to have a way that you can just engage with one of the teams. And I think uh, that can be very powerful. If you have three teams and you have three private virtual rooms set up as well, and ideally you have somebody else who's maybe helping you out as a support facilitator in one of the rooms, and I think the technology will get there. It's just when you've got a, like a broadcast-type virtual, virtual meeting it's very hard, hard to, to, even just the audio side of it, to know who is speaking can be such a challenge. And also the thing I always say is don't rely on the WebEx technology or Zoom. For uh, I would, If it's a high stakes uh, conference or simulation, have a background audio call going with a, a specialist audio pickup microphone in the room. You, you make a great point about something like Zoom webinar or WebEx meetings where you don't have the breakouts. But as you say, if you have the right version of the account, you've got the breakouts that work really well. I love the idea of having the facilitator in the breakout room um, and the audio conference separately. All of those things are great ideas. And that technology is there now if you have the right account and, and get it set up right exactly as you say. Now, Ken, I could talk to you about this pretty much for the rest of the day, I reckon. Uh, but let's wrap up there. Tell everybody where they can find out more about you on your website, social media. All right. Okay. Well, we do business simulations and rather unimaginatively, our website is businesssimulations.com. And I am Ken at businesssimulations.com. I think I'm uh, Ken.Thompson on Skype. So, uh, but if you go to the website, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get all the details and we've, 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 a, we've a blog as well, but uh, that's part of the website. And, uh, we've also got, uh, 10 different books that, uh, are published in Amazon that support the different simulations. 10. That is pretty impressive. Okay, Ken, lovely chatting with you and thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. So, John, what's coming up next month? The subject under scrutiny next month is organisational development, Ooh. or OD or org dev, to people with not much time on their hands. <laughs> Look forward to chatting about that then. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.
The TJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. It's produced and edited by me, John Kennard, with additional production by Joe Cook. Title music is by The Leisure All-Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons licence. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.